winters that melt into springs. These are a few of my favorite things. When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad. Simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so bad. This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's getting harder to deny global warming. Stories about ocean water surpassing the 100 degree mark in Florida had us wondering what's in store here in the Pacific as we approach the warmest months of the year. We talked to Kutle Rogers this morning about what we should prepare for. She's a coral researcher at the University of Hawaii's Institute for Marine Biology. It's unprecedented. They say it's the earliest and the strongest that they've ever had it and that they're expecting possible complete mortality of their coral. And that is distressing. Well, just the thought of instant death, right? I mean, we hear a lot about bleaching, and and sometimes there's a gradual die-off of our reefs, but that instant death was really startling. Yes, and a lot of their corals are already stressed, and a lot of their corals are on the threatened endangered species list. This is not going to be the last. It might be the first. And we worry over here on this side of the Pacific because, you know, usually... What happens over there will eventually happen over here. That is true. You know, to put it in context, Hawaii has not had as severe bleaching as other places in the world, like Great Barrier Reef and Florida and Caribbean, things like this. And this is because we're in a sweet spot in the ocean, and we're far away from everything, and so we get these cooling waters in the central Pacific here. And so... Our first bleaching event wasn't until 1996, and the corals all um, recovered. While in the world, it was, I believe, 82 was the first major widespread bleaching event. And then we didn't have another serious one that actually caused mortality until 2014-15, when worldwide this occurred. But that was the only one that had mortality. The rest we all recovered from. But it's getting worse. That 14-15 told us that this is going to be the future. And we missed it in 19 when we had bleaching, but not mortality. And so this may be the year. If not, since it's an El Nino year and advisories, if not the next few years, because the predictions are every six years. It used to be every 50 years that there might be a large bleaching event, but now It's every six years predicted for Hawaii, and soon it will be every year for many places. Well, we have heard about studies that we're looking at if the coral doesn't die off, does the stress of those bleaching events make them stronger, more resilient? Depends on the species. So that's very species-specific. Right now, we are seeing one of the most heat-tolerant corals is a coral called Leptastria, and we're seeing more of it. So just over the few bleaching events we've had, it already, just anecdotally, we've been able to see a shift in some areas with some species. And so that has become, what, tougher? There's more abundant, and the distribution is wider. But this is a very small species. It's not a large reef-building species, but it is showing that what is happening to the more heat-tolerant corals, that there will be a composition shift. Well, what can we expect to see as we begin, you know, August, September, October, which are generally the warmer months here in the islands? That's a really great question, and I wish I could positively tell you, but I can tell you that NOAA has a reef, coral reef watch, and they have heat stress maps and predictions for the Pacific. And these that I'm going to tell you that they have predicted is a 60% chance that it will happen. And usually they're on the low side. So August, they have a watch. And that means there's a low level of heat stress, but it is heating up. By September, they're already saying a warning, and that is possible bleaching. By October, level one for some sections of Oahu and the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. And level one is significant bleaching is likely, 
And then in the Northwestern Hawaiians, there's some sections that are level two, which is significant mortality as possible. So this is what we're looking at in this El Nino year. It's an advisory, El Nino advisory. And we're not seeing it as much right now. Um, when we do see it, it will be September, October, the heavy bleaching and the mortality by no October, November. But we're not seeing it now because we have heavy trade winds. And these trade winds are buffering the heat stress. And if it continues, we may be able to get through it. But if we have these dead, calm, Kona wind days, that's not going to happen. It also depends on the sunshine, the irradiance. If you have strong irradiance during the heat of the day, the shallow corals will heat up really quickly. And if you have rain or cloud cover, that helps to mitigate that. And strong currents that can bring waters, cooler waters in from the deep. And another thing is sediment stress. We think of sediments as being bad for corals, and this is generally true. You have a lot of sediment, it smothers it, all kinds of bad things can happen to reproduction and everything. If you have a little amount of sediment, a very low level, it clouds the water and it stops the irradiance from coming through. So if you have like heavy rain events with a lot, the fresh water is not good for corals, but if it's not too heavy and you have a lot of sediment that comes in and it gets slightly cloudy, that's actually good for the corals, as long as it's not for bleaching, as long as it's not too much. We're talking coral, but we also know coral, you know, is the building block of that marine ecosystem out there. And so you, know, you worry about the heat and the limu, the seaweed, you know, the marine life, you know, whether it's going to affect certain types of fish. You know, corals are the foundation. And the Kumuliko, of course, had corals as the first that was brought forth, which they, even for land organisms. So Hawaiians understood that that was the keystone species and everything is connected to the coral reef. And this is true, that you have this community connection with fishes, invertebrates that actually feed on corals, that use corals for protection, that feed on things that feed on corals. So it's a whole ecosystem shift that we're going to be seeing if this occurs. And there's winners and losers, and some algae will be the winners. But I was just recently seeing some research on the sea lettuce, the alva, in the freshwater. And since we're having less freshwater, they're expecting that die out and this is one of those that people actually gather to eat so there are going to be some changes and most likely the introduced invasive species are the ones that will benefit over the native species because they have proliferated because they have tolerance to the conditions here and they do well in those conditions so we may be seeing a shift we don't want to Yes, I mean, we are making headway with our urchins that have been keeping our reefs there in Kaneohe Bay clear of the invasive seaweed. So that's the danger is that these invasives may become more damaging. Right. And urchins can be a really in good indicator species because if there's like a freshwater flood like we saw on Kauai uh, in 2018, the urchins are the first to be wiped out, certain species. So you can really tell, okay, here's a real problem. We need to start to manage this. So they're the canaries in the coal mine? They are. Some species are for for the reefs. In Florida, I've seen stories about how they have been trying to protect the coral species by freezing them. You're talking about the gametes, the egg sperms or the larvae. Yes. Um, they are making some progress. Corals are not as easy as humans or sheep like Dolly. So corals are much more difficult because they're a holobiont. They are not just an animal. They're also a plant because the little algae is inside the coral. So they have to be able to preserve 
a lot of this. Some of the species don't pass that on to their larvae and they get it from the water later, but others do. So some species are harder than others. And at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology here at the university, we have been working with the Smithsonian Institute and they have had some success with some species in freezing and then being able, or they call it cryopreserving, and being able to bring these back. That was Kunle Rogers, a coral ecologist with the University of Hawaii Institute for Marine Biology, talking about what we should prepare for as we look toward warmer temperatures in the months ahead. She encourages ocean users to report any sign of bleaching to the various federal and state agencies as they frequent their favorite spots across the state. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. HPR's Atherton Studio Concerts are back. Starting August 19th, join us in person in Honolulu for our Indy 808 performance series featuring Kailana, The Mauve, Evan K and Kennedy Taylor and the Electric Pancakes. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Honolulu's Dress for Success program marks its 20th anniversary this year. The program has helped thousands of women, not just with clothing, but with classes, workshops, and financial literacy to provide support in workplace training. The conversation Stephanie Hahn spoke with Michelle Meyer Ship, CEO of the National Organization. How did you come to get involved with Dress for Success? So I actually got involved with Dress for Success several years ago as a volunteer. I volunteered at the local Dress for Success in the town where I live in New Jersey, but just really donating clothes, showing up to help out here and there. I didn't really appreciate how much Dress for Success actually did for women in the community beyond the clothing. And I never really thought much else about it. And I was working in my career. I have a career as an employment attorney and an HR leader. And I was working at Major League Baseball. I was running people, culture, and operations. And I think I was part of what you would call the great resignation, but I call it the great reevaluation. During the pandemic, I really, it kind of made me stop and take a moment to think, hmm, you know, I've been working in corporate America for over 25 years. I've had a great career. And I feel like it's time to really pay it forward. And what should I be doing to pay it forward and like prepare the next generation of leaders? And what can I do where I'm actually not just troubleshooting all the time, but I'm actually having fun every day, seeing the impact, the positive impact I'm having on people's lives, rather than writing policies and all the other stuff I was doing as an HR leader. And so I stepped away and took some time to reassess and reevaluate. And one day I got a call from a recruiter and the recruiter said, hey, you know, I heard you're on the market. You're, you know, you're interested in other opportunities. And she said, I have this great opportunity for you at Dress for Success. And I thought, hmm, this sounds interesting. She said, it's worldwide, global role, CEO. And I went in for an interview. I have to tell you, when I started to dig in and see the scope and the breadth of the work that Dress for Success does all over the world, I was blown away. And I almost mm. thought to myself, you know, this is like kismet. Like I had a thought about giving back and paying it forward. And within two weeks time, right, I get a call about an opportunity to lead an organization that is literally changing people's lives every single day. And I was so excited. I went through the process and here we are 19 months later. Awesome. So what was it about Dress for Success? You had mentioned that there were other programs or other things that, that the organization does that go beyond actually dressing women. Yes. So 
Describe to me a few of these ideas. Whenever I write about us, I say hashtag dressed inside out, because the part that people don't always see is that we offer a whole suite of workforce development programs for women. So depending on the city, the state, the country, the program may look a little bit different, but it's job skills readiness, it's job preparedness, it's interview coaching, it's resume writing, it's helping someone set up a LinkedIn you know, page so they can get themselves out there in the marketplace. It's mentorship for women who We've helped secure a job in several of our Dress for Success affiliates. She can come back and become a part of something called our professional women's group, which is literally like a peer coaching and mentorship program that we offer. It really is to me about dressing her both inside and out and giving her the tools and the skills that she needs. And over the course of any given month, we even have an online community where any woman can sign up and attend our programs. We have financial literacy workshops, executive presence workshops, and things of that nature. So it really does aim to help her get herself ready in all respects to take that job and excel in her career. So what are some of the challenges that you, that the organization faced in the past and they solved? And what are some of those that you are now facing that you're going to be trying to resolve? So the challenges that we have been facing over the last couple of years really stemmed from the pandemic. The pandemic really, really upended everything for us. Our affiliates had to decide whether or not they kept their doors open virtually or whether they closed their doors completely. So our Dress for Success affiliates are pretty much brick and mortar establishments. People come through the front door for services. We didn't have online services. So a lot of the affiliates had to make a decision and make a pivot on doing online virtual services. And then the other thing that happened to us that was really hard was many of the women, actually most of the women who came to us, no matter what city, no matter what country, came to us through referrals from other community partners. Right. The referral agencies were shut down. So we had to turn to a new process for open referrals, which makes life a lot more complicated because the, the client is not pre-screened. We don't you know, know her situation. In fact, she may be coming to us and we may be the wrong resource for her to come to. So all of those steps that the workforce agency did for us, we had to step in and do, right? And then we had to figure out how to do it remotely. So a lot of affiliates actually did really cool things like set up mobile services. Some of them, you know, set up, literally they drove their own their own minivans, they rented U-Haul trucks, they did all types of things to take our services into the community and offer things literally in parking lots. And I watched this happen, you know, literally throughout the course of the pandemic. And now as we come knock on wood along the other side of this pandemic, they literally are offering their services in a hybrid model. So realizing that women are still facing challenges getting to our locations. And even though our doors are open, some of them have different barriers that don't allow them to get to us. So the hybrid virtual option really does work. So we figured, you know what, let's take the good that we learned from the pandemic Let's add it to our services and take that forward. So that's kind of challenges and where we've been. Challenges moving forward really speak to how we build our capacity. During the pandemic, our scope of client also broadened greatly. We serve women from as young as high school students who may not be college bound and be looking for that first job all the way up to a woman who's seasoned in her career. She may be 50, 60 years old, and she's looking to transition, pivot, maybe make a return to the workforce, and everything in between. She may have a vulnerable situation. She may have taken off six years to raise her children. So her needs are very diverse, and she is very diverse. We have to figure out how we offer a diverse portfolio of workforce programs to serve all of these women, meet them where they're at, in a, in a time and a place where it's all about technology. So we have to up our game 
on technology, on programming, and being versatile and bringing all of that to the broad, amazing group of women that we serve. Obviously, we've all discussed this idea of COVID and how it set women back economically, where they are with their career on all, all levels, right? I was interested in hearing you maybe discuss this. What is it that we're going to have to do to help women move forward? And how do you see this as even more than an individual issue, but something that's systemic? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll tell you, COVID exacerbated pre-existing issues for, for women. Women remain the primary caregivers, not just of their children, but of family members, extended you know, family groups, et cetera, who are aging, ill, whatever it may be. And during the pandemic, that extra burden fell on them when schools were closed, when you know relatives were sent home from care centers and things of that nature. So the child care responsibility, the elder care and family care responsibility, I think a spotlight was actually put on it in a way that it's never been put on it before. And so thinking kind of universally, globally, if you will, about how do we help manage childcare and resources in communities is really important. I think the other thing that we're realizing too is as women are navigating the workforce, we're still underpaid, we're still undervalued, and there's still bias in the system. So again, systemically, broadly, globally, we have to continue to push for that. I mean, you hear the conversation about equal pay every day. They say it's going to take 100 years for us as women to reach gender parity. So there's tons of work that has to go on in that space. So what we try to do with the women we serve is one, find a way to help remove barriers for her. Okay, you can't get here because you have a childcare issue. We're gonna do this program for you virtually, or we're gonna come to the community. We're gonna do something to get to you, or we're gonna offer it at a time that works for you. And then we try to offer her programs that help her navigate some of these challenges. Like, let's talk about how you negotiate your pay, right? Let's talk about how you're gonna show up when you get that offer. And it's not exactly the salary you thought it should be. Let's teach you about financial literacy and financial independence. So again, the scope of programs are purposely broad so we can help tackle some of these challenges and barriers that women encounter. So what are a few solid approaches or strategies that workplaces can take that can ensure a woman's optimal performance? Because yes, I mean, I read that too, World Economic Forum, 132 years till gender equity, you know, in we see women doing everything that they can, but this is not simply solved by an individual dressing right, yes. saying the right thing, getting the job job. This is a systemic problem. This is a workplace cultural issue. So what are some red flags? What are some things that workplaces can do so that women do perform as they can? As you ask this question of an HR employment lawyer, great question. <laughs> so there are, there are a lot of things companies can do. And actually, I spent the balance of my career trying to help them figure out how to do that. So the first thing is, I mean, just technically, Companies need to look at their policies and processes around recruitment, retention, and development. They need to make sure that those policies are gender neutral, really basic core starting point. But then even when they have the most gender neutral and inclusive policies, what often happens is in practice, we get left behind. So literally watching and monitoring who's getting hired, who's getting into the development programs, who's getting the stretch assignments and the promotional opportunities and ensuring that there's equity in that process is critical. So often what you'll see companies do is they will lean on their HR teams, they will lean on their DEI, their diversity, equity, and inclusion teams to help them monitor progress and track progress to make sure that nobody is getting left behind. But then even on top of that, you have to literally talk, train, and educate leaders about interrupting their own unconscious biases. I've sat in too many rooms over the years where the bias shows up against women. I'll never forget, this was about 10 years ago, I was sitting in a talent meeting, for example, and the team around the table 
was trying to make a decision on who to promote for an opportunity. And there was a woman who was qualified and eligible for the promotion. The comment made at the table by her boss, who also happened to be a woman, was, well, you know, she just had a baby. So I doubt she's interested because she's going to want to focus on her, her child rearing. And I remember kind of looking across the table going, well, wait a minute, I have three sons and I'm really happy to work. And I was really happy to come back to work after my kids were born. So maybe before we make that decision about her, somebody goes and asks her, right? So talking to leaders and teaching them about interrupting bias is really important because as long as human beings are making the decisions about other human beings' careers, there's no policy or process that's gonna change it until the human beings, right, can see through their own clouded judgment. Thank you so much, really appreciate you visiting. Thank you, happy to be here. That was Michelle Meyership, CEO of Dress for Success Worldwide. She was talking to HPR Stephanie Hahn on the program's 20th anniversary here in Honolulu. If you're interested in becoming involved with the organization, we'll have information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. How many places in the world are, are like Molokai? And, and I think once you understand that rarity and, and also how precarious it is, right, you fight for it. On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, Molokai residents work to keep local lands in local hands. Available tomorrow, wherever you get your podcast. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about who Hanua. Could hydrogen be in its future? Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So we've got a story uh, by Paula Dobbin. Yes, I'm happy to cover for her. She's on some uh, well-deserved league. And it is indeed another story about Huhonua, which um, Paul has been reporting on. That's that, that biomass plant just north of Hilo, about 10 miles. Uh, and the reason why Paula is reporting on it now is because Hawaii County under Mayor Mitch Roth has really been trying to jumpstart you know, a hydrogen economy. That, that is the goal, to, to get to a net zero emissions standard. Uh, to have clean renewable energy, maybe as early as 2035. It's a very, very ambitious goal. But the mayor has been talking about it publicly uh, around the county, and it has brought up questions as to whether Huhonua somehow might be involved. And remember, this is that tree-burning plant, right? It's now it's idle. It's not actually in operation because both the Public Utilities Commission and then later the Hawaii Supreme Court said, nope, nope, you cannot... Uh, go through with this this plan to burn eucalyptus trees to turn that steam uh, into power into energy and to sell to hawaiian electric but of course the, there were people wondering well wait a minute is it possible that hulanua might uh, if you will repurpose itself uh, for some of these hydrogen proposals that are out there yeah and you know you can see how that's a possibility i mean the companies made a significant investment and that used to be what a, a sugar um plant, I think, from way back when. But yeah, the Hamakua Coast, I mean, just that was just really uh, a wonderful area of agriculture and, and other things. And you might remember all those eucalyptus trees were planted. They thought they were going to use that for other purposes. And, and, and then the idea now was to burn it. But the concern among many people is that, well, I'll just tell you what the PUC and as well as the Hawaii Supreme Court said, is that, no, that's going to contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. That's going to actually result in high electricity rates. That is not in the public interest. But Paula did pick up on a couple of clues. It's interesting, Huhonua, which I should say did not respond to Paula's uh, media inquiries, has actually been uh, working on some of its permits, getting permits to sort of revamp uh, some of its um, its uh, facilities there. Why are you trying to get permits from the county if, if you're not actually you know burning eucalyptus trees right now? 
it is possible and others have acknowledged they could uh they could in fact try to retrofit if you will to a new purpose even hawaiian electric acknowledged sure that is possible uh so that's got people talking i want to add one other thing as some of the county council members there um, are concerned about a lack of transparency what, what's going on here and are you rushing these projects the mayor the roth administration is supposed to award some contracts by the end of the year uh, through a, a competitive bidding process <laughs> the administration will be involved in picking the, the winner but these contracts could be awarded soon uh, and there's some concern that this is being being rushed uh, that this is too soon for such a major transformation. Well, you know, we are also waiting word. Uh, I believe we're in some kind of competitive process with other states to get, oh gosh, a big money, uh, you know, for possibly the development of hydrogen infrastructure across the state, not just on the Big Island. Right, and it's actually really nationally because the Biden administration has really been pushing for this similar national goal. There's a lot of grant money that is out there available to counties, uh, but it is competitive. Uh, and there's a, a bit of a time of the uh, of the essence thing here. I mean, regardless of your views on climate change, this summer certainly has been a wake up call that it's been awfully hot. There's a lot of things going on. It's not entirely related to to climate change, but uh, certainly it is the greatest driver. And so there's a, a sense of urgency to get to this a net zero platform, net carbon emissions. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to see what the community thinks, you know, once we know more about the plans for this plant. Can it uh, reinvent itself? Uh, and I guess we'd have to turn the stone over. And, and yeah, and maybe they'll return our calls, too. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to editor Chad Blair for today's Reality Check. You can read Paula Dobbins' uh, full story at civilbeat.org. Rethinking traditional summer holidays to the Mediterranean, extreme heat and massive wildfires upended the vacation season this year. Never been so glad to get home from a holiday. It was nice to uh, to get back, to be honest. A possible shift in what summer vacation means in Europe, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. small business owner hitting hard times has meant having to cut back. You know, your survival instincts kick in. Failure was not an option. I wanted to fight back. And fight back she did. I'm Kai Rizal. How a gelato business adapted to stay afloat. That's next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Fire Department's Fire Explorer program is a free program. It started in 1981 to expose young people between the ages of 14 and 20 to the firefighting profession. Uh, they participate in general fire station duties, drills and exercises, as well as community service projects. Captain Pookela Hansen is the Fire Explorer program manager. He's been involved since 2016. He says the experience, discipline and knowledge gain gives the participants a solid foundation for adulthood whether or not they choose firefighting as a career. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Captain Hansen in our studio to learn more about the program. The Fire Explorer program started in 1981 with Rescue Captain Henry Ka'ale Kahi at Station 2, or Rescue 2. And I guess it was started just as a way to give kids an opportunity to be exposed to the fire service. Mm -hmm. And also give them an opportunity to be around good mentors, stay out of trouble, and just be around the station and learn what the lifestyle of being a firefighter is like. It sounds like this program kind of gives youth, you know, maybe young adults, an opportunity to kind of get a, a sense for what the job is. Is that part of the reason for having the program? Today, yes. Yeah. To get them exposed to all of those things and also become a better person. We do a lot of character development, personal development type activities 
that they are able to gain confidence in themselves, communicate better with others, and work alongside with other people that prior to coming do not know. In your experience, or even as you look over the history of the program, does it kind of act as sort of a like a feeder program into HFD? Do you have you seen a lot of participants become firefighters? So in the lifespan of this program, as far as I've been able to keep track, there's been over 25 former explorers that have become firefighters, not just in the Honolulu Fire Department, but state fire department, Maui County, Kauai County, federal fire department. So we've seen very successful turnover. Yes, it's very competitive. So at a certain point, we can mentor them. And after that, they have to really put in the work to hone their skills, whether it be test taking, interview skills, to take the next step. And recently, we've even been having a lot more success due to larger classes being accepted in. The fire department is seeing increased vacancies just as, you know, firefighters are reaching retirement age. So I think it's been a nice setup for youth that are looking for a career that's rewarding, that's fun, and that, you know, they've been working hard towards for a number of years. When I first heard about it, it kind of sounded to me like minor league baseball, you know, kind of like getting some kids, you know, an opportunity to experience the job and and hopefully kind of instill into them a, a passion for the job. When I looked at the HFD website, it says that the Fire Explorers program will expose participants to the mental and physical aspects of the firefighting profession. What are some of the physical aspects they get exposed to? Do they actually get to like handle the hose or, you know, what, what are some of the, the things that they get to do physically? So some of the things physically that we do, I mean, plain, simple, we work out with them. And it's functional workouts where they're doing motions and skills that you would do in the fire service. Maybe they're not carrying a piece of equipment, but we've been able to use weights and other equipment to mimic the carries or even the skills necessarily. We also use equipment other times so they they get that hands-on skill and practice and they understand how to carry these things properly. And with the kids, they come, they're all different, different heights, different strengths, and they have to learn to play to their strengths. We pull holes, charged and uncharged holes, Mm -hmm. so that they get a feeling of what it feels like to have all that weight behind them and have all that, that reaction from the holes, same reaction that we'll get. Maybe it's not to the level that adults are used to, but it gives them a sense of feeling and it's not something that they do often in their regular lives. So it's just exposing them to different things and even just handling power tool equipment that they definitely don't have at home, like extrication tools. Mm-hmm. Like Jaws of Life or something? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of the job of a firefighter has some medical-related duties to it. Do participants also learn CPR, or do they get exposure to the medical side? We do bystander CPR every year. Our group feels that that's important because that is something, a skill that they can actually apply You know, in the unlikely event it happens in their own home or someplace that they go. The importance about a lot of these medical skills is if you're not confident in maybe the skill, maybe you're confident enough to find help or be able to help in a certain way. With these medical skills that we teach them, there's a lot of question and answering. So we're building their confidence socially and being able to ask questions, to comprehend the answers that they're being given and problem solving through how can I help this person better. Those are all important skills that I think if our young people don't learn, you know, in their everyday life, they'd have to pick up eventually as an adult at some point in their life. The mental strength and fortitude it takes to be a first responder, to be a firefighter is often overlooked. Can you talk about how your program participants are exposed to the mental part of the job? We share a lot of stories with them so that they can get some type of idea, background information of why we're teaching them certain things. As far as the mental aspect of the job, for us, we rely a lot on each other and building relationships and trust within our own crew. 
And I think that that's the best way that we've been able to build that mental fortitude with you know these kids is with them interacting, socializing, talking with each other, working with each other, teamwork drills. That's probably the most the biggest correlation that we have with the fire department is you know it's, it's teamwork. Things that we do is involved around teamwork and just like a family when things go astray, who do you fall back onto? It's usually your family and that's one of the things that we try and reinforce with them and teach them, you know, things like eating dinner together, preparing dinner together, sitting down around the benches, talking story with each other. And through that, we're able to learn about each other and see how we can support each other. How do you think that the experience and the exposure to the physical and mental aspects of firefighting, or at least the uh, the amount of firefighting they can do in, in this program, how do you think that translates to young people's lives? How do they benefit and what do they learn about themselves? Seeing them participate in all these things that we do, the reward that we get is when we see them smile or see them perspire or give each other high fives because we know in their mind they accomplished something. And how you were talking about the interpersonal relationships and speaking and communication that really took a hit during COVID for a lot of us. And we were beginning to see kind of a shift in the type of kids that were enrolling in the program. And it wasn't a bad thing. It's just we had to adjust the way we do business and the way that we are able to connect with them. And in that, it shows flexibility and even resilience too. And I think those are things that we all try to share with the kids. Sometimes they're so, the blinders go up and they're so just focused on our task is to do this. But we all know in our job, it's not always black and white. You know, there's a huge separation with gray and that's when you start to learn how to critical think, problem solve, and we put them in those types of situations, whether it be through firefighting drills, medical drills, or just icebreaker type of drills where they have to brainstorm with each other to figure something out. On the Fire Explorers Facebook page, there are some pictures of participants doing activities that some may think are non-firefighter related. I've seen pictures of, of the kids working in Aloe, doing community service like yard maintenance around Mauna Ala and other places around the island. It seems like it's not just in the firehouse, but it's also instilling a community service mindset into, into the participants as well. Why is that part of the program? You're absolutely right. Build that sense of service, leadership, community within themselves. If they can't find it within themselves to service something or provide service to something greater than themselves, that's for the greater of the community, then they really need to dig deep into why are they here or what what are they doing? What is their purpose in being in this program? We're just going through the motions of going to school, playing sports. You know, it, I think it reflects upon identity, you know, knowing your own identity, building confidence, but more so without the community, you know, our, our responsibility grows very small. And with all these programs, you know, like, or with these projects, service day at Mauna Ala, working in the Lo'i, going to Koholave. I think those are avenues where they become exposed to not only um, different things that are happening around the island, but different career paths as well. Right on, Captain Po'okela Hansen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, brother. My pleasure. We've been hearing from Captain Po'okela Hansen, manager for the HFD Fire Explorer Program. He was talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. That program is financed by the department as well as through charitable donations, and the hope is to expand it to different parts of the island. We'll have a link to more information on our website later today.
we've been hearing about all kinds of ways people are using breadfruit these days. Restaurants are getting creative, and we've featured everything from Ulu noodles to Ulu cheese. But how about Ulu burgers? HPR's Taylor Kozlov joins us to talk about this latest thing on the menu. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, Highway Ends, new patty. Um, they used to have a vegan patty. It was an impossible burger. Um, so their locomoco, their burger, their hamburger steak. Um, if you didn't want to eat meat, you'd have to use an impossible burger. But uh, owner Monica Taguchi Ryan decided she wanted to source her ingredients a little bit closer to home. So um, she switched out the Beyond Burger and gone for a beefy breadfruit burger. Um, and for Monica, it's it's an important investment. Hopefully, you know, our investment in a in Ulu down the road will help mitigate some of those issues in terms of sustainability and you know just minimizing carbon effects. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a win-win situation when you're able to purchase Ulu and and do something with it, and the you know the customer loves it. It's also aligns well with our brand doing Hawaiian food. And like I said, it's a canoe plant versus, you know, um, Impossible Burger, which I think is a great option still. But I, I would choose Ulu over Impossible Burger for the reasons, you know, I mentioned. Yeah, so their Ulu Burger, it's gluten-free. Um, it's got some other veggies, some carrots, some onions, um, and some spices like turmeric, ginger. Funny enough, uh, Monica, when she first uh, made the switch, hadn't realized that Ulu was seasonal. Um, so they come into maturity between July and October. Um, the summer, they weren't able to have it, but they hope to bring it back again. And she said that she's exploring options to make it available year-round. Um, and when it does come back to Gucci, Ryan hopes that it can spark some very important conversations um, here. You can you know, start to have conversations about you know, culture and how that affects Hawaiian culture and um, what that means. So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for, for people to start thinking about a food product that perhaps you, know, you never thought about until you, you, sh- you saw it on a menu for the first time. And it is interesting. You know, I've seen things being sold at the farmer's market, right? And it's like, oh, that might be interesting to try. So it's fun to see these chefs kind of get creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot more are getting creative. Um, I think a lot more people are looking towards Hawaii's ancestral crops, ulu, uala, pala'ai, um, kalo, to kind of reconnect uh, with Hawaiian culture and also just kind of use local food because um, we do have, you know, a near complete dependence on imported food. Um, so their change is small, but um, it's it's definitely part of a larger trend. And um, making that switch could mean a lot for local food goals. Um, for Act 176, it was passed in 2020. One, um, it mandated that state departments purchase at least 30% of their food from local farms by 2030, 50% by 2050. Um, but in the first annual report, um, departments said that they struggled sourcing quote unquote common foods, um, foods common in a typical American diet. So potatoes, rice, carrots, apple, oranges. Um, and that's just because those foods simply aren't grown in abundance here. Um, so Amy Peruso, she's a state representative. She's been a big proponent for expanding local food procurement. And she says that the problem um, with not being able to source those foods is in our taste. We were able to sustain a really in- intense population numbers on these islands um, prior to colonization and occupation. So um, those indigenous native foods, um, ulu, kalo, like those are great sources of carbohydrates. And um, and even, you know, there are lots of protein sources that um, are native that we need to kind of get back to. And But it is a matter of shifting the palette because we're not going to be able to grow enough rice here. Right. Um, I mean, what I, what I admire is the folks who are kind of looking at how are we able to feed so many people here before and how do we kind of go back to those kind that kind of food system that is really kind of grounded in this place and in the culture of this place. And these foods, uh, canoe crops, native crops like kalo, uala, ulu, pala'ai, they're definitely more abundant in the islands than other crops common in a typical American diet. So last egg census done in 2017 found, you know, for example, the state has less than 40 acres producing potatoes, but they do have nearly 500 acres producing kalo. 
Um, so Dana Shapiro, she's the general manager at Ulu Cooperative. That's a farmer-owned business dedicated to revitalizing Hawaii's staple crops. She wants Ulu, Kalo, Ualapala'ai to be eaten on a regular basis again, but she also understands that traditional cooking methods can be a little intimidating and maybe not so feasible for the everyday person. Most people don't have emus in their backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, most people aren't going to be, and then if they do, they don't not, they're not going to be using it to cook on a daily basis. So she wants it to be more accessible and something that will kind of invite a person in and, you know, it's familiar with them. They've started posting on their website traditional crops, but in a more modern recipe suited for a more modern palate. Um, and so they've got recipes for like ratatulu, uh, uala hummus, kalo hash. Everything you can do with a potato, you can do with ulu. It just tastes even better. So presenting, for instance, like a scalloped ulu dish to someone who's really unfamiliar with um, ulu, you know, will already be familiar because they're used to scalloped potatoes. So that's sort of an entryway, I think, to get people to pay attention to this crop that they might think of as an ancient crop that's no longer relevant. And then they see it presented in a way that they actually recognize. And that can just sort of be a foot in the door to building a relationship with this crop. And that's that's what we're trying to do is create a hook. And then once they're in, you know, they can try it in a million different ways, including in the traditional recipes. I know the Ulu Cooperative at one point was talking about trying to uh, create more Ulu flour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so um, she says that it's not a one-to-one replacement, right? So it's not 100% Ulu in it. They do have to add other um, you know, wheat and other things to kind of make a better flour. They use like almond flour sometimes. Um, she says that if we don't start sh- shifting our consumer behaviors when out of state of supply is affected by disasters or you know global disasters like COVID, the islands won't be able to sustain themselves. Um, we have to start eating different. So instead of reaching for mashed potatoes, why not reach for mashed ulu? Okay, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if the consumers respond, you know, as they see new products and try it out. Yeah. But thank you so much, Taylor. Of course, thank you. We've been talking with HBR's Taylor Kozloff. You can check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that does it for us. Up tomorrow, we plan a call-in show around the challenges in the restaurant business. Notice more eateries charging an extra fee when you get your bill? Not just a tip for waitstaff, but maybe for the back of the house. What's that all about? Give us some feedback. Got questions about what's legal? Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or on our website. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.